This episode of Bass Freaks is brought to you by Dunlop Bass Strings. Dunlop Bass Strings are made in California and designed by the players at Dunlop to sound and feel the way a string should. With deep lows, strong fundamental punchy mids, and articulate highs. Dunlop Bass Strings offer a complete line with standard nickel and stainless round wounds, flat wounds, and super brights. They're also available in short, medium, and long scales. So go to jimdunlop.com and check out Dunlop Bass Strings. Hello, my friends. Welcome to Dunlop Presents Bass Freaks. We're grateful and very happy to be back for another season. This is a place for all of us bass freaks to chat it up, gain a little insight and inspiration, and have some fun with some great bass players. I'm your host, Josh Paul, and today we welcome the mighty Billy Sheehan to the show. Welcome. Hola. How are you? Doing very well. How are you doing, man? Very good. It's a sunny day here in Nashville, a little chilly, but it's beautiful outside. It is a bit chilly, isn't it? A bit. <laughs> just, just a touch. Man, thank you for being here. Very excited to have you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, you have had such an amazing career. Long, the longevity factor of your career is blows me away. Um, I do want to say one of my favorite things. I've seen you play many, many times. Uh, I had a very cool VH. Boom. A VHS video of you when I was a kid, and I was just <laughs> yeah. blown away by it. But you make everything look so spectacular. You 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 give it a show, <laughs> and the performance thing is is beautiful. I love it. Thank you very much. Yeah, man. Well, uh, people people hear with their eyes sometimes, you know. And uh, I think uh, from playing in clubs for so many years. Uh, in front of uh, what could have been in different audiences, engaging them and doing things that they, you know, respond to just night after night after night after night. We played one time we did 21 nights in a row all wow. in, the, in the same town. Which band was uh, that? It was with Talos, the early days. Ah, awesome. And so we uh, we did we did three shows in one day one time, three full shows. So wow. all that all that time on deck really helps you to uh, learn one thing that some people a component that a lot of people don't need, some people don't want, but a lot of the audience does appreciate it. There's a little bit of an entertainment factor to uh, what's going on up there. So I, th I thought that was always important. I mean, I, I love watching a guy just sit there or stand there and be amazing, and he doesn't have to do anything. That's cool. But once in a while, uh, the entertainment uh, part of it uh, is an interesting factor. <laughs> well, you, you make, even if you're just doing, uh, you know, a simple one-note, piece you make it look so spectacular and it's it's just um you keep people engaged and i think that's what do you think that's an important part of of being an artist not just a bass player but an artist yeah because uh who are you doing it for if you're doing it for yourself that's perfectly legitimate or doing it for nobody that's perfectly legitimate too there are no rules really to art i don't believe i don't believe in enforcing any kind of a rule or law you're free. Art is a real freedom that uh, we, we, we must cherish. Uh, but uh, I, I, I think that uh, the, the entertainment and engagement you, you, you partake upon uh, with a live audience, for me, I enjoy that. I, I love it. Back in the day, we didn't have a uh, dressing room, so we would just step off the stage and hang out with everybody and then look up at the clock time for another set we get up walk up and do another set so we became really intimately involved in a lot of great friendships which i still have to this day with a lot of people who used to come see us play and uh the advantage of that was we kn we'd know what they thought was good and what they thought wasn't you know we could kind of <laughs> put our thumb on the pulse of what was going on that hey that new song you did uh, who is that i didn't like that very much well that one will get dropped or that you know that new Robin Trower song. Oh, yeah, well, let's add a few more of those on there. So it was a good good way to understand what they're doing. Not in a way to pander to anyone, but I do like to see smiling faces out there. Lucky uh, break many years later when To Be With You uh, from with Mr. Big was a big hit. We go to countries we had barely heard of, and there would be you know, thousands of people smiling and singing, people with tears in their eyes. And wow, that's a, it's a pretty, pretty great thing. I know there's a lot of music now that's just the guy sitting there and playing YouTube. 
which is a valid art form. Everything's valid. Uh, but I, I would really encourage them to experience what it's like to do that in front of people because it pushes you to places you don't go by yourself. I, I, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. So you said you're, you know, playing the bars, hustling, you know, three shows a day. How did you transition from playing um, these bars to doing the rock star thing? Well, it was just you had farther to run. You know, we played, uh, we did a lot of local opening up at uh, Axe. We opened for UFO, opened for uh, uh, Aerosmith, opened for Twisted Sister, Blue Oyster Cult. Did Van Halen opening act uh, in 1980 in arenas. So it was a transition, you know, a step at a time. Eventually it comes, you know. I imagine there are bands that, you know, do their demo, put their record out, the record's a hit, and there you are in the arena. And that's a tough, that's a that's a steep incline to, to go yeah. up. So, but we were lucky. We started off playing the tiny little places and clubs and, and did all kinds of things. Then we do an outdoor show and there'd be, you know, thousands of people there. So you kind of get used to it. It wasn't that big of a, of a, a challenge for us, fortunately. Nice. Um, as far as, so you went from, did you go from Talos to playing with uh, David Lee Roth or what was next? Well, while I was in Talos, I took a break and did a European tour with UFO. We had opened up for UFO uh, a few years earlier. And uh, their bass player, Pete Way, wasn't going to be with them anymore. So they contacted me. In the interim, I had actually worked on a record with Michael Shanker because he was still in UFO when we had opened for him. He contacted me. Me and Denny Carmasi, drummer from Montrose, went there to London in 79 to record uh, with Michael. We didn't end up on the record because uh, it kind of fell apart. But later on, they put out a a special edition with the demos with me and Denny on them with, with playing. But then by 83, UFO was uh, had a different guitar player, Paul Chapman, and they needed a bass player. So they contacted me and I went over and did, I was about 20 or 30 shows around Europe. My first time to the continent uh, okay. of Europe. We played in Poland and Germany and uh, or Poland, Spain, Portugal, Italy, bunch of places. And uh, it was my first <laughs> European experience. First time performing over there, I was recorded with Michael in London in, in uh, 79. And then I came back, Talos kept going for a while, uh, changed members, all hell broke loose. And then by summer of 85, uh, I got a call from Dave to come on out and start a band. Actually, he told me he was going to do a movie because huh. he wanted to keep, keep the band thing secret. So I didn't uh. know. I thought, what? Why would he want me to be in his movie? So when I went out there and had the meeting, he goes, there, there is a movie, but... Here's the real reason, and we we decided to go that do that, and uh, that's funny. And we we launched from there, and it was a life changing event to say the least. Very cool. And so, how did Mister Big come about? Well, I left Dave in 88 and uh, wanted to start my own thing. And uh, I knew the guitarist Paul. He used to come see me play in Talos when Talos played in Pittsburgh. That's Paul Gilbert, right? Paul Gilbert, yes, yeah. sorry. Uh, and uh, drummer Pat Torpy, he was a, fr uh, through a couple of acquaintances. I knew him, and I knew right away he was a great drummer, and he sang his ass off, too, or something. And I had to keep my keep this guy in my back pocket. And so when it came time to do that, I called Paul and Pat. We were looking for a singer. Got in touch with uh, uh, Eric Martin uh, through Mike Varney, who was a guy uh, who had a column in Guitar Player magazine, Spotlight on New Talent. So he, he knew all the good players and singers. So when anybody needed someone, hey, Mike, who do you got? And so he, he told me about Eric Martin, and Eric was just spectacular. And I also came with a bonus that uh, there was a connection with Eric and uh, manager Herbie Herbert, who just recently passed away. But he was one of the sorry, founding fathers of the music biz, one of the most powerful managers ever. He put Journey together. He, that was his band, and just an amazing guy. And he, because of him, we we uh, had some amazing success with uh, Mr. Big. Very, very happy to say, and very thankful for that. Amazing, that's beautiful. Yeah, I, I uh, like I said before, I, I've had the pleasure of seeing you play a bunch, and uh, your technique is amazing. The your tone is crazy. Can we talk about your basses? A little bit? Sure. Yeah. I, uh, behind me are a bunch of uh, Yamaha Attitude basses in various configurations. Uh, the stock standard one is uh, a beautiful thing, in my humble opinion. 
Uh, it's basically the this P base right here is the wife base, okay. the original P base. So we're going to, for the people that, since this is going to be an audio only uh, oh, okay. podcast, I'm going to. I don't hear me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm pointing to a base on the wall. It's a beat up old P base with an extra added Gibson humbucker. And that was my main base from about 1970 on all the way up until Mr. Big, really. And then in 92, 91, they came out with the original attitude bases, uh, which are a lot of the things that I did to that P base, we put on the new Yamaha, but we, they did it correctly. I did my own, uh, uh, uh bad, uh, craftsmanship version on my <laughs> P base and they did it all correctly. So the attitude bases have been just wonderful. They're very, very successful. There's a couple of the Yamaha attitude Facebook pages where people get together and trade parts and modify them. And it's a great uh, energy uh, of a community uh, with all the attitude players. And I, I get on there and talk with guys and hang out and we uh, exchange it. Somebody can't find a part. I can usually help them out with that. That's <laughs> awesome. Down the line, which is pretty cool. Uh, so we, uh, it's been a very successful uh, base for Yamaha and it's, uh, I have a double neck version. I got an eight string version, a fretless version, uh, I got an acrylic one, the color of wine for the winery dogs uh, oh, um, version awesome. of it. Pretty cool. I want, so, I want to talk about that as well afterwards. Um, sure. The stuff that you're doing now. But I see on the neck a second ago, I just saw the neck. Uh, is that scalloped, right? Or is. Uh, yeah, this this one is. Uh, oh, sorry, I know we can see. Uh, scalloping is just where they remove the wood in between the frets. They, they cut it down. So normally your finger will touch that wood a little bit. And to some people, that they wonder what it would be like if I didn't touch any wood. It's just string on frets. Uh, so on a guitar, I remember years ago in the 70s, uh, John McLaughlin from the Mahavishnu Orchestra was doing scalloping because he had a lot of Indian influence. I think that may have been a factor. And so I knew about it for a long, long time, but it wasn't until Talis and Ingve did a tour together in 85, and Ingve had his strats fully uh, scalloped. I thought, what, what would it be like if I removed, but I couldn't remove too much wood because you lose mass and strength on the neck. So I just did the top one, two, three, four, five frets and only halfway across on, under the higher strings because you because you the lower strings, you can't touch the wood anyway. So it, people always ask about it, but in fact, if it wasn't scalloped, I could still generally do what I need to do. Uh, but it's, but since that was one of the features on the old P base, we wanted to grandfather it into the attitude basis. And it's kind of happy, uh, handy, sorry, because you can feel kind of where you are that scalloping under your fingers, you feel where you are. So if you don't happen to be looking, you kind of know where you are, are in the neck. And it helps if you really want to bend. So the, the high E note, it's the one thing about the attitude. The uh, P basses end on an E flat. That's their highest note. It's just yeah. so many rock so songs on the key of E. Handy <laughs> to have that extra note. But you can bend that up to a G. So if you ever need a high, if you ever need that high E or high G note, it's a little easier to bend when you can get your fingers underneath it like that on the scalloping. So again, it's not an essential thing. And on bass, I wouldn't want to do too much more than what I have already done here because you'd lose too much mass. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. Sounds great. Uh, you it's a, a, you have a few inputs on there, right? What's the purpose yeah. for that? Well, originally, uh, my uh, P-Bass had a Gibson EBO pickup and a Fender P-Bass. It came stock as a normal Fender P-Bass, but before it came into the music store, Art Kubera Music, 910 Fillmore at Sycamore, Buffalo, New York, uh, I, he gave me a Gibson EBO to use until my bass came in. And that big, fat, giant pickup was a feature on a lot of songs from the 60s. Paul Samuel Smith, the bass player from the Yardbirds, he had a big, an Epiphone Rivoli, which is the same bass, basically, with that big, fat pickup and that super deep, low tone. I loved it. And Paul McCartney's neck pickup on his Hoffner, Hoffner with a super deep, low tone as well. A lot of guys using the uh, bass player for Chicago, uh, I forgot his name. Uh, uh, he, he had that Gibson tone of that, that fat pickup. So there was room to put it in. There was a big space there. And I thought, well, I'll buy one. I got one from Gibson and just got it in there somehow. And I didn't know how to wire two pickups to one output. So it came with a wiring harness. So I just put another hole in the, in the P-Base uh, pickguard and ran two cords. 
Huh. And initially into two channels of my Fender Super Basement. But then when I had enough money to get a second amp, I ran one amp EBO sound and one amp P-Bass sound. And it was the best of both worlds because the EBO is a super deep sine wave low end. And the P-Bass is all the articulation and harmonics and wood tones that our P-Basses are known for. So that's pretty much how I've done it ever since. Some people say, well, you should have just done a stereo plug. But if you're in Elmira, New York at 1230 a.m. and your chord breaks, your chances of finding a stereo chord are pretty slim. So oh, yeah. instead, instead using two mono chords was always safer. And again, like we, we spoke earlier, people sometimes hear with their eyes, a bass with two chords coming out of it. People yeah. that didn't know anybody go, wow, it, it needs two chords. It's unbelievable. So, <laughs> a little bit of showbiz mixed in with that. And to this day now, um, one of the liabilities is if I go wireless, I need two wireless systems. All right. Uh, two separate transmitters and two separate receivers. So it gets a little bit uh, uh, difficult. And plus they're close to each other too, so they can uh, do some interference. But I've, I've had good luck with them and it works out really great. If I'm just gonna do a regular session or just play normal, regular, I just plug the P-Bass pickup in. If I want both, I get a second amp and do that thing. Okay. And it really works well. Now I'm not the only person to do it. Through the years I've found out all, all kinds of guys that did the same exact thing at the same time, all unknown to each other. Uh, Neil or Chuck Berghoffer, famous bass player, who did the Barney Miller theme. Oh. He's known for that. I saw his bass in a shop right near my house when I lived in L.A., and sure enough, big, fat EBO pickup right there. Wow. I saw a photo of uh, Mel Shacker from Grand Funk Railroad, his jazz bass, big, fat EBO pickup right there. The guy from Redbone, big, fat EBO pickup. They just posted the bass from one of the Pink Floyd basses used on might have been used on Dark Side of the Moon. There it is, big EBO pickup right there. So it was a a, a, a common sense solution for for a lot of guys who wanted both of those tones because there was yeah. room for that on on the P base. So it wasn't. And then Rickenbacker had the Rico sound, which was a stereo output, same principle. And all the early Alembic, the first real high quality craftsmanship custom beautiful bases that to camp to come out in the 70s they all had uh, dual output into their dual channel preamp that went along with the bass so it was not an uncommon thing uh i read that uh paul samuel smith i think he had a jazz bass and he ran two outputs from each pickup separate output into two amps john Elwistle did the same thing and so it's not an uncommon solution uh or, or it's not as rare as you might think what else is in the What else is in the collection besides the uh, wife and Yamaha bases? I don't have many collectibles other than I've got a uh, a Hofner base. I was in London years ago doing some clinics, and I wanted to get a Paul McCartney Hofner base because it's Paul McCartney. Yeah, come on. Yeah, that's where that's what started it all for me, and so for millions of others. And so all the ones I saw, this was the early '90s, were were they were beat up. Uh, weren't well taken care of and I wanted a fortune for them. So I said, eh, it's kind of out of my price range. So I did a, the base center in London. I was doing a clinic there and I look on the wall and there was a, it was a Hofner, but it had a large body, arch top, large size acoustic body, single cutaway. But it had the same electronics as the uh, Beetle bass, the same switches and everything. I said to the guy, what's that? He goes, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a Beetle bass. I know, but it, it's the original Hoffman goes, oh, yeah, yeah. How much do you want for it? He goes, uh, 250 pounds. It's sold. Because all the others were thousands of dollars. Yeah. So they shipped it to me. And it turns out it's the senator, which is the Stuart Sutcliffe, before Paul McCartney. That was the base that, the model that Stuart Sutcliffe had. But he had different electronics on his. These were the electronics from McCartney's base. Not uh, his, but right. like the same kind. Okay. So I still have that hanging on the wall. That's one collector piece. And then for my birthday years ago, because of that whole EBO thing, and I love Paul McCart, uh, Paul uh, Samuel Smith. Sorry, <laughs> a lot of Pauls. Paul Samuel Smith uh, EBO bass, which is like a Gibson EB3, only it was an Epiphone. They were like a side. It looked like Gibsons. I don't. I never understood how that worked. But so they actually bought an old 60, about 67 Epiphone Rivoli bass for me for my birthday. And so I have that. That's the only one I got a 68 uh, Telecaster bass. Uh, some, par some parts aren't original though. So I have to take it to somebody and have them give me the bad news. So what, what's real? <laughs> what is it? 
And I just got a 1967 basement amp with a large style dual 15 cabinet, which is the, which those are the cabinets that I had first when I had a super basement in the uh, early 70s. But I got it for an amazing price from a very, very generous person in Buffalo, New York. And I'm, I'm going to be uh, uh, playing through that when time allows. I bet that sounds killer. What uh, what amps yeah. do you typically use now? Right now, I've been using Harky for the last, uh, oh, easily 10 or more years. I was uh, all component pro audio in racks for years and years and years. Uh, right after using the original MPEG SVT tube amps, the big ones, mm-hmm. would blow speakers a lot, and the amps were not weren't always consistent year to year because they were changing in the company. When they stopped manufacturing, I went to all pro audio rack mounted custom preamps. I used that right up until the early '90s when MPEG was manufactured again by St. Louis Music. Then I went back with them was with them for several years. Then they sold off to Loud Technologies, started making uh, uh, gear overseas without anyone overseeing, and it, it fell apart badly. So I, uh, Larry Hartke called me and said, hey, if you need anything, no contract, no nothing, just let me know. I'll be glad to get it to you. And so we've been together ever since. He's a wonderful guy, and the Hartke gear is fabulous. And so it has never failed me, ever, anywhere around the world. So I'm very pleased with that. Very cool. What about strings? Was that strings? Rotosound from the beginning. Okay. Rotosound, or we did a custom set. Uh, it's basically the regular RS sixty six set, which everybody used. Jocko, Chris Squire, Getty Lee, uh, and whistle everybody. That was the string. So I lightened up the G string a little bit. It's a forty five. I made it a forty three. Little easier bending, even though the core is still the same size. Okay. And I made the E string heavier because I often do a drop do, drop D tuning, right? Detune just the E with a hip shot D tuner. And to have a thicker string on there keeps it a little tighter. So it's a 110 instead of 105. But live I've used up to a 120 on low oh, E wow. string. Wow. And it's and people get afraid of the big strings, but there's an a there's kind of a, an advantage in that. Since it's more mass, you got to tune them tighter to get the pitch. And since they're tighter, they move less, and you can actually lower the action accordingly. So even though they're heavier, you can get the action lower to get the same effect and not have it be that much more difficult to play because they're heavier. So that was the one advantage of that heavy string. So uh, we were going to maybe do the signature set with a 115 or 120, but we knew we'd scare people away. So we left it with a 110. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, all that thinking. You're thinking, man. <laughs> Tell us about your custom preamp. Uh, well, I, the, the pedal that I have now from EBS is a version of my original custom preamp, which was the Pierce, made by Dan Pierce in Buffalo, New York. I got my first one in 79, I believe, and they are just glorious. I think Alan Holdsworth used them, Ronnie Montrose used them, a couple of other guys. Uh, great, great sounding, amazing, all solid state, and they're mind blowing. You'd, you'd swear it was packed with tubes. Brilliant. So uh, I had EBS do a pedal for me, uh, and they basically mimic what happens in the Pierce. It's a clean sound and a separate channel of distortion. And you can mix in as much of any kind of distortion as you want, but you don't lose your clean tone because when you distort a bass, remember in uh, Dance to the Music by Sly and the Family Stone. And I'll go to that song, bottom of the dancers. And he's got fuzz on his bass. And he yeah. goes, like, <laughs> there's no low end at all. It's an amazing right. tone, and I love it, but yeah. there's no low end. So to play a regular song with distortion on your bass, you're going to lose a lot of that deep sine wave low end, because that sine wave isn't a sine wave anymore. It's a, it's a, bunch, it's a bunch of square waves and variations. So uh, to have that split signal. So this pedal, it splits your signal. It lets you affect the each one with its own loop on the clean side and on the distortion side. So you can put any effects on either one. They combine again, go go to your amp, and you've got a perfectly clean, normal, regular bass tone. Step on the button, and you ghost in at any level a distortion tone. And uh, it's been incredibly successful for EBS. It's one of the biggest selling pedals. It's on its third iteration now the ultimate version. So they put, added a few extra little thingies to it. And okay. one thing I was really pleased about from the very beginning is the, the socket for the circuit, the integrated circuit chip that you get your distortion from, 
uh, they, they, they put it into a socket so you can take it out and try different chips. So back in the day, there was RCA, Motorola, Texas Instruments, and a couple of other different chips. So uh-huh. you can find them on old gear, pop them out, and put it in your brand new pedal for uh, uh, who knows, your own unique, uh, cool kind of tone. So Interesting. It's, uh, since I'm such a, a, a handyman, a craft, crafty, <laughs> I wanted want to have a way to modify it in case I wanted something different. So I've had people write to me that tried this chip or that chap, chip, and a dear friend of mine, uh, John Willis, who's on my Facebook page, is a great tone experimenter. He took about 10 different chips and did a little synopsis of what each one does, and it's a pretty interesting little pedal. But just on its own, as is, plugged in, I've had some uh, very, very famous bass players tell me that they don't leave without, home without it now, so I'm... I'm very pleased about that. That is awesome. What other effects do you use or things that uh, excite you in the effects world? Well, uh, my original Pierce preamp, I took to line six, and they were kind enough to model my original, my actual unit. So my Pierce is in the Helix software. Oh, well, cool. You buy it. You, cool. My, a model of my exact amp is in With there. With your name on it? it? No, they didn't. They, they, uh, they called it Busy One. I think because I was so busy, it was hard ah, for them to get a hold of, get the preamp there. So now I'm, <laughs> it's a busy one. comes in a couple versions. And then I wanted this. I have a, an Ashley Audio compressor, which I've used since the 70s. And they were a company out of Rochester, New York, right close to Buffalo. So there are a lot of Ashley Audio gear in the Northeast as a result. But it's, it's a sweet thing on their compressor. So I took them my Ashley compressor, and they modeled that also. That's called Rochester Comp. Uh, that's okay. the Ashley uh, compressor that's in the Helix now. So when I when I got to travel a lot, instead of carrying racks of gear, I bring my Helix along, and it's, it's just been glorious. I've used it on uh, a bunch of tours recently. And, and it uh, sounds pretty close to... It is righteous. It okay. is right on. And I had a great discussion with a very famous producer here in Nashville and a couple of other guys all standing around at a club out to see some some players and most of them admitted, they go, we haven't put a mic in front of a guitar cabinet in years. He was in the, between the Helix, the Kemper, and the Fractal, all, all great uh, devices. The yeah. Helix, I, I, I took a liking to it because from the, from the Line 6 pod, I think was the first or one of the first commercially available modeling device, the kidney-shaped pod. And I remember using that on records. I did a solo record. Steve Vai came over to my house, played through the pod, sounded great. Billy Gibbons came over to play a solo on one of my solo records and uh, played through the pod. And I play it for people. And I, you know, I add to the story. I, I had a, a hundred dollar strat. Somebody got me uh, as a joke Christmas gift from China from Guitar Center, cheap ass. And uh, I tuned the strings down to B. So the strings were tuned five frets down. The strings are just flopping around because I was writing in baritone mode. Okay. And one of the, you know, so I, I had that there. So Billy came over to do a solo and uh, on, on my uh, solo record, Holy Cow, on a song called A Little Bit Will Do It To You Every Time. And uh, I guess he grabbed the wrong case or something because he picked it up. And it was a, just, you know, I, I knew it wasn't the right guitar. He, he was, I could tell by the look on his face. And so I said, well, oh, you want to you try this one? Because I, I knew he played with eights, really light strings. So I gave him that $100 threat, played through the Line 6 pod, and I play that song for people, and I go, okay, let me play something. Tell me who the guitarist is. Instantly, they go, is it Billy Gibbons? Oh, wow. Right away. Wow. Okay. So Billy is in his hands so much. So pod, $100 strat, strings tuned down, five frets, and it's Billy, the, the, the grandmaster of all. I, I love him dearly. And what, a, what, a, what a wonderful guy, but man. Instantly recognized his song. It's hilarious. Man, you have some guitar hero friends, um, and that is awesome. You've been oh, fortunate yeah. enough to play with some amazing people, and they're fortunate enough to play with you as well. Very kind um, of you. Having worked with some of those huge names, is there anyone that you'd like to work with that you haven't yet? Well, it was Paco de Lucia, uh, but unfortunately he passed away, a flamenco grandmaster. I don't think I could really, uh, I'm qualified, but I was just going to stand there and hold a note underneath him and play because he's so spectacular. But uh, it's hard to say. Uh, I haven't jammed a lot with Ingve. We did encores together and played together a bunch of times, and he's quite awesome. Steve Vai, one of the greatest musicians I know by far, 
just a brilliant, brilliant musician, but just a great player too. Uh, Tony McAlpine, Paul Gilbert. Paul Gilbert is mind blowing. Uh, he's uh, worked with Michael Shanker briefly there in '79. Uh, what a what a genius, amazing tone. Uh, so yeah, I've, I've been uh, we, we we jammed with Billy Gibbons on a G three stage one time too, and I, I got to sing. Uh, 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 what's the uh, uh, and mercy, what's the what's the uh, uh, the, the boogie song? I, I can't. Oh, I, I, uh, the Grange, of course. Oh. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Yeah. I, awesome. I have not had my coffee yet today, so I apologize. But yeah, I, I sang the Grange with Billy Gibbons, so that was pretty cool. And then uh, we did a show, a benefit show for Jason Becker uh, uh, in Chicago. Myself, Ed Van Halen, Steve Lukather, and our drummer from Mr. Big Pat Torpy. And I sang "Ain't Talking About Love" with Ed Van Halen. So wow, that was uh, that was my two. That's two. Man, those are some two, two things I'm, I'm very, very grateful. Yeah, amazing, give. amazing experiences <laughs> and highlights. How uh, how important do you think is uh, developing your own voice as a bassist? Supremely, uh, it is all there is. But I I don't I never concentrated with that as a goal. I concentrated on getting up there on stage and doing the gig night after night, doing it good, doing it better, doing it better, doing it more entertaining, more in tune, more in time, uh, learning a million songs, playing all kinds of things. And then one day I, Oh, I have a, I have a voice. So I think sometimes it's like concentrating on being rich. I want to be rich. I want to have money. So no, I, I want to be great at something. Maybe I'll be compensated, maybe I won't, but I want to be great at something. I think that attitude is a better attitude. Then, as an aside, you will probably end up earning a lot of money. If you do something great, people will want it from you. So to have as your goal to have a voice, uh, I don't know if that's a good goal. I think mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a byproduct of moving forward, doing everything you need to do, uh, improving every opportunity you have, uh, playing every genre you can possibly expose yourself to, all kinds of different players. As a bass player playing with all kinds of drummers, it's drums and bass, that's the thing. Uh, learning about other instruments and instrumentation and learn a little bit about guitar too so you can understand what your guitar player is doing. And then eventually you will find a voice. Most people I know that have a distinctive actual voice. Steve Vai, Billy Gibbons, Tony McAlpine, Paul McCartney, Ingve. I don't think they were ever going for having a voice. Right. Victor Wooten, Jeff Berlin as bass players, uh, Getty, uh, Doug Pinnock. I don't think they were ever going for a voice. They were just, they were, they're kind of too busy. I <laughs> 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 got a show to do. <laughs> I, you know? so I get it, that. I get and that. It does come. I, I, no, I, I'm speaking for them to some degree. I apologize that, that maybe they did, but not to my knowledge. And I know all of them pretty well. Uh, I don't think they were going to, to, or the, and nothing is people. How do I get a, a, a style? Uh, I don't know. Uh, you just keep playing until keep pouring stuff into the stew until you sip it one day. Oh, that's pretty good. You know, a little more pepper. Okay. You got it. A, a similar thing. I think, I, I think it's a, uh, I do think it's analogous to uh, just kind of shooting at the wrong goal. You know, I want to be, a, I want to have a huge house to be successful and drive a Rolls Royce. Well, you better be good at something first <laughs> yeah. or, or be a, or be an amazing scam artist and be damn good at that. So right. I don't get caught, you know, same kind of thing. <laughs> so I, I, I love to experiment. So I think uh, experimentation and not being afraid of it is definitely key in, in, I agree. Yeah, I've always uh, taken chances, you know, taking chances, even even if it's in the moment where I'm not sure really where I am or what's happening. It seems to be working. I'm going to take a chance and move over to this part of the fretboard. I have no idea what I'm doing, but all of a sudden, oh, and there's times that, uh uh-oh, I better go back to the original <laughs> because I'm in big trouble now. And yeah. you really learn by doing experiments and failing and making mistakes. And uh, I remember one time, well, people use microphones and microphones have a different cable. And voice is, you know, really important to uh, 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 
amplify it perfectly. So I'll get microphone cable and make guitar chords out of that. This is going to be amazing. Didn't work at all. My bass was <laughs> one quarter of the volume it was. And I remember going up on stage going, what is wrong with my amp? What is wrong with me? And I got, oh, no, those cables. So I popped them out on a break and put the other ones back in. Yeah, so I learned. I learned. <laughs> <laughs> I learned. That's not how it, it works. <laughs> uh, what challenges you musically? What do you work on nowadays? Oh, everything. I'll sit down with a metronome and just try never to be off time with uh, all kinds of variations of time signatures and patterns. I'm constantly refining and improving and recovering right-hand techniques, uh, developing exercises to push my hands farther so they'll do more. I basically try to build a machine out of my hands that will do anything and then forget about it and start to think of music. And my hands are therefore not holding me back. There isn't something I can't do because my hands won't make that move. So now I kind of, they're the kind of the hardware and now the software in a way is music and understanding music. And it wouldn't be necessarily playing fast and furious licks all the time. It would be playing, you know, learning the bass to a Sinatra song or learning a, a, a Eddie Harris sax solo or some kind of thing. It doesn't always mean faster, wilder, crazier, more chaotic and shreddish. Uh, sometimes it can be, mean subtle and sweet and beautiful too. And uh, so I'm down here in my little studio every day for a long time. And this one advantage of the pandemic has brought to me is I had time to dissect and reevaluate so many things about me, my hands, my playing, what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing on the fretboard, what my hands are feeling, how the bass is set up, what I'm plugged into, a million things. So, because I never have the time for that. I'm always yeah. about to, I'm unpacking my bag only to repack it again the next morning to go out again. So that's been a, a blessing and a very well-disguised uh, blessing uh, uh, to have the time to sit with my bass. And uh, yeah, I've been doing all this right-hand technique stuff that is just a bear to do and I had to stop and do it at uh, tortoise speed because I can barely think it through but day two day three it's starting to work okay I get it now then I go back to my regular playing and oh man it's it's working so much better yeah and it takes a to dissect your playing in a logical way and really watch everything that's happening and determine what's good and what's not and how you should change something. There's a, it's probably more of an art than a science, but it is some, to some degree scientific, the motion of your fingers of what's grabbing what and how you're making this move. And it's uh, quite interesting. And I'm glad now that I've gone through this because I have a lot of things I can show my fellow bassists that I think they'll find helpful. And if they don't find helpful at least will give them the inspiration that they can do the same thing with their playing and and advance it i i think there's never any end to how far you can go and again it doesn't mean how fast you can play or right. how amazingly how, how awesome you are it, it, it's a musical artistic sense that i i know everyone has everyone has it in them uh, not everyone finds it but i i think in that respect it could be a help to a lot of other players too and i do enjoy helping my uh, fellow musician uh, often, and it's very satisfying. Amazing, <laughs> amazing. Well, you're helping me right now for sure, and everybody listening. Um, I'm glad, I'm glad. Speaking of the pandemic, um, what have you missed the most during, you know? Live on stage, I, I live to play live, and I play live to live, and that's my biggest thing. Uh, more than recording, more than writing, more than anything, is to be on that deck performing that's the main thing in my life. And so it's interesting to take the main, most important thing in your life, the thing you've worked your whole life for over half a century, and you can't do it. Yeah. Wow. So all, all of a sudden. Yeah, I know. And so it has, uh, again, a, a blessing very, very well disguised. It, you know, it, it makes you turn in and start to reinspect things and improve upon things and, uh, Gives you time for some things you didn't have time for before. So uh, hopefully I'll 
be able to play again. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> at this point, I, I, at this point, I don't believe anybody or anything. So right, right. <laughs> I don't right. care anymore. But I just hope I can play again because that's my that's my thing. I've done a couple little things, and on March third or March fourth and fifth, I'm going to be in Mexico City doing like a clinic and a jam thing with some players down there. Oh, very cool. But it's not it's very not an cool. actual gig, and like it's my band coming through town, sound check. You know, right. two hours of music, but yeah. we will be performing live, and that's cool. So, uh, you know, I've done a couple little things like that, uh, but to be, you know, with your band on tour, sound check, ready to go up there, singing, playing. That's that's my that's my thing. That's what I love to do. So, hopefully, that's the best. It is. It. it is the best. And uh, a lot of players, I see some amazing players on YouTube doing the impossible, literally on bass. Mind blowing. Uh, I give them so much credit, and uh, they're very inspiring. I really would like to urge them to take, get that on deck, get that on stage, bro. Get that. In. And I always say my my three big things, my three main advice: every player, no matter what you're doing, get in a band. One, get in a band with songs. Two, get in a band with songs that you sing. If you're not singing them. Maybe not you not singing them, but at least have a singer in the band or someone singing so that your songs have singing in them. You will appeal to so many more people than standing there soloing. You know, you will appeal to so many more people. You will touch so many more people's lives. And every great player that we all know as a household name did exactly that. There are a few exceptions, a few, there always are. Getty Lee, you got in a band, got a band with songs and songs that you sing. Chris Squire, band, songs, singing. Uh, Doug, Doug Pinnock, band, songs, singing. Uh, you, you name it. I mean, even Jocko's first record, there were songs with singing. Right. Uh, you know, there it's, it's a very, very important thing. Uh, for guitar players, bass players, drummers, it's supremely important. So, yeah, I, I'm supremely impressed with uh uh, the YouTube generation and what they're doing. It's unbelievable. It's mind-blowing. But uh, get in a band. And for a musician to get in a band with songs and singing, yeah. you are going to touch people with people. And I'm a fan, and I was touched by so much music, by great bands, songs that brought, brought tears to my eyes, songs that changed my life, albums that changed my life, changed my whole point of view on things. That's the power of those three things. And I'd like to see a lot of these great players utilize that incredible talent and get into bands and start touching, start changing the world. You Solid. will change the world. Solid advice. That's, okay. I agree 100%. How do you approach singing and playing at the same time? Well, I, I know if I'm playing too busy and somebody wants me to calm down, they'll give me a part to sing. That's a much I, nicer way to approach that, I'd say. <laughs> this will show them. I'm singing this part. Okay. But no, in fact, though, uh, I've done some complicated stuff where I sing and play. I remember I, uh, I had the great honor of doing a tour with Rush and become acquainted with uh, the amazing Getty Lee. And he told me that before a tour, he'd have to go in by himself and start singing and practicing that because it, it's, uh, it's, it's tough. Bass and singing are tough. That's why when you see uh, a great singing bass player like McCartney or Sting or Lemmy or Phil Lynott or uh, Esperanza Spaulding. Oh, yeah. Forget it. I, she's like two, two people in one <laughs> singing and playing. Rory Gallagher is another guy. He could be talking while he's playing and he's talking and and go right back and nothing is ever out of time. Right. He goes back to singing in time while he's playing impossible guitar parts. Amazing. But bass and singing are a little difficult because you're not just strumming with your right hand. But I've seen pianists that do both hands and sing as well. So it's quite a challenge, especially uh, when I first began uh, in my very first band, uh, I never sang. And they said, and they were going to do some harmony. And they said, oh, well, you sing the, the part. I go, no, I, I don't sing. And they go, oh, sing into the mic. Just do it. Sing the, sing the note. We need the harmony part. And I said, here it goes. <laughs> <laughs> and I croaked out somewhat of, the, of a right note and then kept going from there. And since then, I took a, a lead. Back in the day, I'd sing David Bowie or Judas Priest. Those, ah. are two, those are the two voices I could do back in the day. Wow. And, uh, so uh, th- th- those would be my lead vocals. 
But uh, yeah, I uh, Esperanza Spalding. Then, if you, if you really, really want to be sad about your abilities, watch her. <laughs> She'll She's blow amazing. your mind. She, she is amazing. And a stand-up bass, no less. A yeah. Sweet, sweet, beautiful lady, uh, singing perfectly, brilliant, and playing like a maniac on yeah. bass. Very inspirational. I agree. What do you want people to know about you that they may not know? Oh, uh, I'm pretty. I'm pretty easy. Um, most everything. Uh, I'm. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm. I respect people's opinions. You know, even if they're very different from mine. You know, and I'm willing to reinspect mine when 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 they may not be uh, uh, looked at in a favorable way. You know, I, I think uh, we're at a time in uh, culture where there's a lot of contention and confrontation and uh, a lot of fist to fist and I'm not happy with it. I, I, I grew either. up when, you know, I, I was too young to go to Woodstock, but I remember hearing the asteroid on the radio and I was peace and love and accept each other and, you know, come on people now, smile on your brother, you know, that it was, it was a good vibe and I, I think we've lost a lot of that. And, uh, but a lot of that came from music. That was a musical message a lot of people had. Were they reflecting society or was society reflecting the music? It's hard mm. to say. Yeah. Would have been one or the other or both maybe. But I'd like to see that back. So that's kind of kind of where my head's at, really. But uh I uh I like to cook too. Oh <laughs> what's your specialty? I do uh all the meats I, I have are generally organic. I'm I'm a I'm firmly believe in uh, ethical treatment of animals and the healthful treatment of animals. And if you're going to eat them, take good care of them and uh, don't fill them with a bunch of chemicals. So I get a organic uh, pork chops and uh, I diced Granny Smith apples, saute them in butter, add maple syrup, clove, oregano, and cinnamon, then pour that substance that of high deliciosity over the pork chops and it is quite uh, spectacular. You just made my stomach growl. That sounds <laughs> that we, sounds absolutely scrumptious. <laughs> we had pork chops one day and had no applesauce. So it was like, well, what am I going to do? And the home handyman said, I got some Granny Smith apples. There's got to be a way. So I diced them up, sauteed them, maple syrup and the cinnamon. The, the Christmas spices, cinnamon, clove, oregano. Watch it with the clove, though. But I remember my mom would cook a ham. She put cloves of clove in the ham as flavoring. So I knew that was a component part of that. And uh, man, it's good. Mm, Very nice. Mm, mm. I'll be right over. Um, All right. <laughs> finally, let's, let's talk about uh, uh, winery dogs. Yeah. Well, one of my most enjoyable musical experiences of my life. Talos was for the longest amount of time, a three piece band. So I do enjoy three piece bands, easy top grand funk railroad, uh, all big influences on me, three-piece band, Cream. Uh, no, or a three-piece with a singer. That opens right. up The Who and Zeppelin a million more. But it's just uh, uh, the three-piece is, is a cool situation. So that's what the winery dogs are. We all sing. Uh, uh, myself, Richie, and uh, Mike. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a blast to play live, very improvisational. Richie actually has a little bit of jazz in him from his year, for about a year he spent with Stanley Clark. Oh, wow. Lenny, Lenny White in a band called Virtue. That's, that's pretty cool. So once in a while, you hear a note that it's not in the rock spectrum. Kind of for, cool. Yeah. So for those uh, who, who don't know, who's all in the band? Myself, uh, Richie Constant on guitar, uh, Mike Portnoy on drums, Mike, uh, famous from Dream Theater and a million other bands, uh, one of the best drummers in the world ever, and great vocalist and a great uh, guy to have in your band, no matter what. Richie is, uh, we had him in Mr. Big briefly. Uh, I remember that when, when, when Paul Gilbert uh, left the band uh, in the uh, uh, late nineties. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we did the millennium show, the 2000 year, 2000 show with Richie Constant and uh, people think, uh, well, Richie Constant was that guy was in poison. And I go, well, <laughs> yes, but he was also the guy who replaced Alan Holdsworth in Stanley Clark's band with uh, a romantic warrior, uh, uh, Return of Forever drummer Lenny White. Yeah, so he, you know he, he can play. He can play. 
He sure can. And, yeah. and man, can he sing, too. So so it's a, just a great uh, band, enjoyable uh, to play in. And there's so much, it's so much easier with three guys. You think, well, with four guys, would it only be 25% more difficult, right? No, it's about 75%. With five, it's about 150%. With six guys in the band, it just goes up exponentially. So three right. guys is easy, and uh, it's fun. And uh, uh, hopefully we'll have a new record out uh, at some point, uh, ASAP. Oh, man, I look forward to hearing it, and uh, can't wait to see you out on tour. You Thanks. have any last advice for bass players out there? Well, uh, watch the drummer. It's all about the drums. I'm lucky to have played with great drummers. Who's your uh, favorite? Uh, Who's your favorite? Uh it, it it can only be one guy, which is Dennis Chambers. Uh, but I, uh, he is the baddest cat ever. I just did a, a show with him recently here in Nashville, uh, just a quick benefit private show. And man, he is just so, I learned so much from him. <laughs> I should just pay him weekly. You know, I How's so his much. health? Great. Okay, good. He is up to and above speed now. He awesome. is right back to where I... Where he initially blew my mind, he's blowing my mind again. He's right back to perfect health. I'm so glad. But I feel bad saying just Dennis because there's so many other incredible players that I've worked with. Greg Bissonette with Eden Smile, unbelievable. Uh, Mike Portnoy, who I already mentioned, is just a spectacular player in so many ways. Uh, Virgil Donati, I, I did a tour with Virgil Donati a couple times. Uh, uh, who else? Uh, Mark Miller, drummer from Talos. New Talos record is done. Oh, cool. At the label. We went back and got all of our old songs. We thought uh, that when I left the band to join David Lee Roth back in 1985, uh, we had a lot of songs we hadn't recorded. So we said, well, should we go back and let's do those songs? Should we modernize them, bring them up to speed and make them hip? Or should we do them <laughs> the way we did them back in 1985? Let's go back, take the time machine, go back, and we finished the record and uh, – a bittersweet note, sadly, our singer from that uh, lineup of Miss of, of Talos, mixing my bands up, uh, Phil Narrow, he passed away after the record, sadly. Oh, uh, sorry to hear that. He made it through with, with an incredible uh, uh, bravery and courage. He made it through, did an amazing job on the record. But he had ongoing health issues at the time, and mm -hmm. uh, sadly, we lost him. So that record will be a tribute to Phil Narrow one of the greatest uh, singers I've ever worked with and one of the nicest human beings on the planet. So that'll be coming out soon too. Okay. And uh, I don't know, that's uh, hopefully I'll get to play out as soon as possible. And your wonderful listeners who I thank for tuning in will be, uh, will be kind enough to come out to a show. I hope so. Yes, sir. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate you doing this. We all do. And My pleasure. Uh, Thank you for listening into the Bass Freaks podcast. I really appreciate you all. Stay healthy, spread love, spread joy, kindness, good vibes, and inspiration. And remember, you got this. Follow your path, whatever it may be, and just play. And a huge thank you to Dunlop for making this show possible. Make sure you check out Bass Freaks wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, cheers. <laughs>